If you will, please, this morning, let's turn to Luke chapter 6. The title of this this morning is, is The Subtleties of Separation. We've been talking about the last couple of three weeks about that God has commanded us to separate. And we say separate from what? He says separate from them. Separate from that. So we may can learn a little bit more today about just exactly what he's talking about and how it means to separate. We talked about before we've got to associate with people in the world. Even he says that, that I don't ask you, Lord, to get them out of the world. Just keep them from the evil one. And he said that the only way to get them totally away from sinners is to leave the world because they're all around us. So that's not what he's talking about. So maybe we can a little bit better understand this thing of him wanting us to stay separated and what it's all about. And you know, I said last week, he gave the responsibility to us. We're supposed to separate ourselves. He'll do it for us, I think, if we lax, get lax in doing that. But we're supposed to separate ourselves from that which is contrary to the mind of God and separate ourselves from those things that are contrary to the mind of God and unto God himself. We get away from the things that are contrary to the mind of God, and we get unto Him. I didn't know for a long time that you could do that. I had a fellow tell me one time in the basement of another church, Brother Joe, you, you guys in this church just don't understand things. I said, what you mean? He said, you don't worship Jesus. You worship the Bible. And I had thought to myself, well, you know, the people who started the church says if you're worshiping Jesus, you will worship the Bible. But I learned you can put the Bible ahead of Jesus. You really can. And so many times we do that. We do that. And I've learned we can. But Jesus is supposed to be the center of everything we do about this thing called Christianity. We're to separate ourselves from the desires, from the motives, and the acts of the world. That is a big statement. Think about it. All these people with ads on TV are trying to change your mind to get you to buy something. And they're trying to make something look attractive. And the thing that I have learned to hate more than anything else is this whole idea, and mostly lawyers use it. It's in every ad you see that a lawyer puts on, and there's millions of them. It says, you deserve this. This word, y'all, deserve, is straight out of the pits of hell. It's Satan trying to tell you, you, need to, you deserve this. Go ahead and sign your name to the dotted line. They'll sell it to you for no money down and you don't even have to pay for it. Make one payment till next year. And by then, the, the blooming thing's probably wore out anyhow and you're paying for something that you can't even use. But you deserved it because you know what? That word right there, this idea that I deserve something makes me put too much attention on myself and those things that I would like to have and probably could get along better without them. So we separate ourselves from the desires of the world, from the motives of the world. What's the world trying to do? Get us to be like it. That means that we're not like God. And the acts of the world. Now that's the things people can see. And they ruin us. Why? 
so people will know who we are. If they notice that you're not hooked up with the world in desires and motives and acts, they'll say to themselves, even if they don't say it out loud, there's something different about them. And that's what we're supposed to do. God called us a peculiar people. And if we act like Jesus, everybody's going to call us peculiar people. So the world will know that there's something different about us and get a little bit curious and maybe find out just what it is and decide they want a little of it themselves. But there's another reason for this, and I'll share it with you this morning. And so many church-going people nowadays that I talk with, at least anyhow, don't have a clue about it. They, don't, they never thought about it. So the spirit world will know who you are too. Now remember, the spirit world is a group of people who don't have bodies. That's what they are. The angels are part of the spirit world. They don't normally have a body, but they can create one anytime they want to and walk around in it. And it can look like anything. And then there's the other spirit world. The satanic spirit world. Satan and all his demons that got kicked out of heaven. And their goal is to try to destroy God's work. You know what God's work is? It's you and me and what we're doing. And so if Satan is going to destroy God's work, he's got to destroy us, what we're doing, our relationship with God, our faith, and create disappointments, create the idea that you can't trust God for anything. That's what they do. And in 1 Peter it says, they're going about all over the world, seeing whom they can devour. His ministers do the same thing he does. And through this thing, while we're talking about the good stuff, I want to bring up some of this bad stuff too because I'm going to tell you something. I really and truly believe and I think the idea comes from God that y'all need to know something about this bad spirit world because it's out there. Nobody talks about it anymore. But that is your enemy and you can learn to recognize when the enemy is trying to destroy you by doing something that you don't even realize what the end result is going to be. Because that's what way Satan himself got Eve. She had no clue. And I think even when she ate the fruit and found out she didn't die, she's calling God a liar. And God didn't mean that. Satan took what God said and twisted it around. You won't really die if you eat of that fruit. He was just saying that to you, he told Eve. And so she ate. She looked, it was good, so she ate. And then she didn't die. She just knew God was lying. But that wasn't what he said. He said, when you eat of the fruit, you bring death into the world. And that meant at some point, everything's going to die. And she thought she'd gotten by with it. But she didn't. And we, the rest of us, have suffered ever since she made that decision. Now let me ask you this. How do demons that are floating all over the world, there are thousands of them, millions of them probably, and they're organized, and they've got areas, they've got areas assigned to them. This part of Alabama has got this demon. He's been here all along. And he knows you. And he knows your mama and your daddy. He knows your granddaddy and your grandmamas. And he knows all the way back if there's a weakness that comes down through your family tree and you got it. The demon that's messing with you knows about it. He's got that edge on you already. He knows what it is. And he watches you. Now let me say this. Demons cannot read your mind. Satan cannot read your mind. 
People, some people think he can, but he can't. He can't get in your mind, not in the mind of a believer. But I can watch you and see the expressions on your face and tell an awful lot about what you're talking about and what you mean about what you're talking about. If you like something, I can watch you and listen to you real close and I can figure out you like it. And if you don't like it, I can listen to what you say and find out you don't like it. What kind of an edge? I mean, I had a friend who he and his wife both were in the real estate business and they went to a school to teach them to look at the customer and the expressions on his face and tell whether he's fixing to buy something or not. They got the edge on you to do that if they know. If a man trying to sell you something knows already what is in your mind, he's got a better job of getting the sale made. You believe that? It reminded me, I called an old guy that used to work for him yesterday. There was a guy right outside of St. Louis named Cletus Hullin one time. He kept 600 horses on feed all the time. He had people buying horses all over the United States for him and shipping them to him. And he had a long barn alley, a big barn. And the alley was long. I mean, it maybe was two or 300 feet, 400 feet maybe. And he had stalls on either side. And at the end of that alley, it was his office, and the whole front of it was glass. So he could sit at his desk and watch people going down through his barn looking in the stall. And as they, they had to come in through his office, so he'd meet them. He'd ask them what they were looking for. He would tell them, I've got horses all down that alley on both sides, and there's guys down there that will bring them out and show them to you. So you just go down through there and look, and if you see anything you want, well, ask one of the guys, he'll get it out for you. This guy said yesterday, he said, yeah, that's the truth. He really did. He had microphones installed all the way down that alley. You could not be in that alley, and he could not hear what you said. And it was all coming through speakers in his office. So if you walked in the stall and didn't like this horse, you say, man, I don't like this one. He wouldn't try to sell you that one. He'd wait until you found one you wanted. And if you went in there and tried to tell him, you know, goof him off a little bit by saying, well, we thought about this and we thought, and, 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 and just to see what he'd say, he knew what was on your mind. And Cletus Holland sold more horses than anybody, 10 times as many horses as anybody in the whole United States. Why? Because he knew what you were thinking when you came to make a trade. It's interesting to know when you get into something that somebody who knows your mind totally can have the advantage of you. And that's the way the, seem, the, the, the demons do. They use every bit of information they can to know what you're thinking about at the time so they can get the best of you. One thing they learn about is listening to what you say. Have you ever listened to people? I mean, not you don't stand there trying to think about what you're going to say next, but really just stop and listen to somebody. Don't even plan to be saying anything. Just listen to everything they say. You can find out all kinds of things about them. Think of this for a moment. Suppose Satan, and he tempts us now, he can't make us do anything, but he lays temptations in front of us. And for you to make a statement like, oh, I wish I had one of those. I would give anything in the world if I just had one of those. Now what's going to be the next bait that Satan uses for you? What you said out loud, I'd give anything in the world for. He just already knows exactly what you've got going and you will take that bait because you don't have to swap bait like you do when you're fishing to see what they're hitting today. He knows what they're hitting already. And so when you make those idle statements, I've thought sometimes about the ladies. I did some study one time that said that most of the ladies use over two and a half times as many words to get through a day as the men do. Be careful, ladies. People are listening. People are listening. 
And some people what don't have anybody are listening to, and they're out to get you if they can. So what happens when somebody pushes your button? That's the phrase most everybody knows. Well, he just pushed my button, and I just let him have it. I blew up. I gave him a piece of my mind. Well, we got to be real careful about that because most of us' mind's about the same size it was yesterday, and if we keep giving away pieces of it, first thing you know, we're not going to have a mind. It says in, 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 in Proverbs that a man who cannot control his own spirit is like a city without walls. A city without walls has no protection. And if people can't control what they say, they've got no protection whatsoever, it says, from Satan and his ministers. You've got to be careful what you say. Luke chapter 6 and verse 43. Now listen to what Luke is trying to say here that Jesus said. He was sitting there listening to it or standing there listening to it and he wrote about it. And he wanted us to know what Jesus was saying. Verse 43, For a good tree bringeth not forth corrupt fruit. You hear that? A good tree don't bring rotten fruit, no count fruit. Neither doth a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. For every tree is known by his own fruit. For of thorns men don't gather figs, nor of a bramble bush do they gather grapes. A good man out of the good measure of his heart bringeth forth that which is good. In other words, people speak from their heart. The Bible is making a statement. That is a fact. What you hear me say will come from my heart unless I'm goofing around with you. And an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is evil. For of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaketh. You know what the abundance means? Excess. When you've got so much talking in your heart that you can't control it all. That's what people hear. The excess. When you have lost your coup, that which comes out of your mouth is actually coming out of your heart. I can read your heart by listening to what you say. And people who know to do that can do that also. You can listen to a person and tell really what they're made of if you'll just listen. The excesses. What you can't control that's in your heart. The feeling in your heart you can't control is fixing to come out your mouth. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. And here's what he says in verse 43 and 44. If you hear bad come out of a man's mouth, he's a bad man. And you hear good come out of his mouth, he may be a good man. But certainly he's a bad man if you hear bad stuff come out of his mouth. I've learned that. So you listen to what people say. I'm going to flip to Proverbs chapter 18 and read you something it says there. I've spent a lot of time in Proverbs over the last year since I was about 10 years old. Proverbs 18, 21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Listen to that. Solomon says, I found out that death and life are in the power of your tongue. And they that love it shall eat the fruit thereof. Whatever you say, you're going to have to live with. You ever heard that? Mom and daddy ever tell you that? Well, you said it, now you're going to have to live with it. It's kind of like somebody going to buy a new car 
or a car and they sign a contract and they're going to have to pay for it every payment. You're going to have to live with whatever you sign. You better have a good idea that it's something you're willing to do before you promise that you're going to do that. Because God says it's better not to make a vow to God than it is to make one and break it. You don't break a, a, a vow to God. God says, I'll destroy, in Ecclesiastes, he says, I'll destroy the work of your hands if you break a vow to me. Men that do work and do good work and get good pay for it, think about that. You make a vow to God and break it, God will destroy the work of your hands. He'll take your skill away from you. In Proverbs 16, in verse 23, it says, The heart of the wise teaches his mouth. A smart man teaches his mouth to shut up. That's essentially what it says. And my mama didn't like that word. And she'd pop you upside the face if you ever used it and probably wash your mouth out too. She didn't like that word, shut up. You didn't tell nobody to shut up. You might tell them to hush or something like that, but you didn't tell them to shut up. But that's what it is. I teach my mouth to hush. That way you won't find everything that's in my heart. You won't be able to figure that out. And especially if I'm in a trade, I got to be careful. You think about Jesus for a minute. Everything you know about Jesus. Think about this. This is something that God put in my head. I think it's right. It's right to, for me. But the only thing you ever learned about Jesus was what he wanted you to know. You couldn't have listened to Jesus like I'm talking about and figure out something about him that you didn't know about. What he wanted you to know, you learned. And if he didn't want you to know it, you wasn't going to figure it out. But what you say is important. Death and life is in the power. Solomon says, of what you say. Now there's a lesson in all of this, and this is something that we need to think about. How much do you know about the bad spirit world? How much do you know about the satanic world? How much do you know about the demonic world? Probably not very much because you've never studied it. It's not a very pleasant subject. But there's a lesson in this. God told us to stand up to Satan. When Satan comes in front of you, you stand, he said. Well, wait a minute. I mean, if I met Satan on the road, I'd turn around and light out. That's not what he says do. He says stand up and resist him, and he will flee. He's not a brave person. Satan's not. He'll run if you resist him. He'll run to somebody who will do what he wants them to do. He wants to be a success just like everybody else does. All you've got to do to Satan is say no, and he'll leave. But we don't do that. We run from satanic things, and we get right up close to temptation. And he said, flee temptation, but stand against the devil. And we do it just the opposite. The reason God's people in the church do not know anything today about the evil spirit world is because they don't want to study it. That's the reason. They put it out of their mind. Now think about something for a moment, please. If you spent any time in the gospel, you knew what Jesus did. Jesus got to a place called Jerusalem and started ministering to people. Those people that Jesus started ministering to had demon-possessed people in their graveyards. If you walk by these real strong people, who were demon-possessed, ran out and grabbed you and beat you up. They acted crazy. They were all around. And Jesus came 
and started snatching Satan out of those people. And they were everywhere. That is one of the things that impressed the average man walking the street of Jesus' day is that he could take Satan out of a person. If a person was oppressed by Satan, didn't have Satan dwelling in him, but just under pressure from Satan. He just couldn't make anything work because Satan was everywhere he turned. Satan was undoing what he was trying to do. Jesus fixed those kind of things. And it became the idea of the average man walking the street that this man Jesus is stronger than the devil is. They had seen the devil all around them. They had seen what the devil had done all around them. And that is the thing that impressed them about Jesus. Satan made you sick. Satan could make you die. Satan could make you act like a crazy person. And Satan did all those things to all those people around him, and they saw it every day. Now let me ask you something. Where are those people today? They're still there. They're still there. But they're locked up now in institutions or doctors, people you're supposed to trust say that they've got some kind of mental illness they're not demon possessed they got mental illness and they're oppressed by Satan they don't call it the psychiatrist and psychologist have no diagnosis for being oppressed or possessed by the devil they don't have it they won't even talk to you about it it's no such thing. And so they put it down. So you see, Jesus couldn't come out today because he wouldn't make that big impression on enough people because he couldn't snatch these demons out of everybody. What people don't understand is when some 11, 12, 13-year-old guy gets a submachine gun, goes to school, and shoots 10 people. Don't you know that Satan? Don't you know it? Who in their right mind would think of doing something like that? Turn, if you will, please, to 1 Corinthians. In chapter 6, or 2 Corinthians, I'm sorry, chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Now we're going to get some explanations here. Who is them that we're supposed to separate from? Who are they talking about? And what does it mean by separating from them? Wait a minute, I got this store. Well, whoever comes in the door... You sell to them. If you got a barber shop, you cut their hair. Don't mean you have to go drink with them that night or go eat supper with them or whatever like that. You do business with them, but you don't get close to them socially because what they're doing is liable to cause you to do the same thing. And that's the thing that he's trying to, to keep us from. We'll see in a moment what he said about it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14. Be ye not unequally yoked together with believers. I learned. What did I say? Thank you for correcting me. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. What does that mean? You ever seen a picture of two ox in a yoke? One can't get away from the other. One can't run away without dragging the other. They, whatever they do, they got to do together. And one imposes himself on the other. It was an old trick years ago. They talk about, I've read them in the Foxfire books, if you ever read any of those. It was an easy thing to break an ox. You got one smaller than the ox you already had broke, and you put him in the yoke with him, and you told the one that you had broke, come up, and when he came up, the other came up too, or got drugged. 
And it wasn't long before you had both of them pulling together. Because if the one on one side didn't pull with the other, the yoke would do like that because one's going ahead, and as he went ahead, it would twist on the neck of the other, and it hurt the heck out of him. So they learned to both walk alongside each other. So you got one broke really, really quick. So he says, don't yoke yourself up with unbelievers, because you'll soon find you happen to do the same thing they're doing. I learned, God says you... A man can't serve two masters. I learned early on not to own a horse 50-50 with another guy because he would make a decision and he had just as much authority as I did in the deal and he'd make a decision that cost me money. I knew how to make money with him or supposed to and he didn't and if he made a bad decision, it cost me money. So I never did that again. Somebody's got to have 51, some of them's got to have 49. That's the only way I'd operate. Either you're going to run the deal or I'm going to run the deal because we're not going to have it even. So that's what he's talking about. Don't go in business 50-50 with anybody because you're under control and they can pull you down. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Now look what he says. Unequally yoked because there's no way, and we'll see that, there's no way you as a Christian can be equally yoked with an unbeliever. No way. It don't work. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? Paul is reasoning now with, with these people in Corinth. He said, don't you understand this? I'm making this up. What do you have to do as a Christian with somebody who's un, 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 an unbeliever? And what concord or accord hath Christ with Belial, Christ with Satan? What have they got in common? Nothing. Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel or an unbeliever? Now think about it a minute. They're going to do things you, don't, you wouldn't do. They're going to do things you don't want to do. They're going to do things probably that would embarrass you to do. And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols. Now look at this. For ye are the temple of the living God. God lives in you today. He doesn't live in the temple anymore. You know when the temple was rent, Jesus was killed on the cross. The veil was rent. God moved out of the temple. He no longer lives there. He now lives in you in the form of the Holy Spirit. For ye are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. He's walking in you and he's living in you and you ought to be particular what kind of deals you make with somebody that hates you. Wherefore, Come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing and I will receive you. Okay, everything's pretty, pretty straightforward there except for one thing. What is an unclean thing? The word defined unclean means impure. If you're dealing with it morally, it means lewd. are specifically demonic. Now please understand something. If you need it, or if you want me to, I'll go further into it. Deuteronomy in the book of the Old Testament is full of what you do with unclean things. And an unclean thing is something that has been dedicated to an idol or a demon or to Satan. Rock guitarists dedicate their guitars to Satan so that he will make them famous and they'll sell a lot of records and make a lot of money. As long as he's got that guitar, no problem. If he takes it to a pawn shop and you go buy it, when you take it to your house, you carry the evil spirit with you. 
And Deuteronomy says there's only one way you can get rid of an unclean thing. You can't give it away to anybody because you just give the evil spirit to them. The only way you can get rid of the unclean thing, it says, is to burn it. We went to a seminar one time when our kids were little, about two and six, I guess, and we're coming home and we, he, he talked about this getting unclean things out of your house. Knickknacks, things on the shelf that you picked up at an antique store or something like that. If you sense that there's something wrong with it, you take it out back and throw it on the pile. We had just been through a tornado. People were giving us stuff at our house. We lost everything we had. They would come in with big, huge black sacks full of clothes and, and all kind of things. We got Ouija boards. We got T-shirts with rock groups pictures on front of We got clothes that there's no way I'd let my little girls out of the house with wearing them. And Judy had put them all back the stuff that wasn't fit to wear back in the closet. And this guy said, that's, that, that's not going to work. The unclean things are still in your house. God has said, don't touch an unclean thing, so you got to get them out and burn them. And we had a big fire in the backyard. We had the biggest bonfire you've ever seen, burning clothes and everything, Ouija boards and all that kind of stuff. Satanic things. And don't you think it didn't make an impression on our little girls? They're not about to put on a T-shirt with some kind of rock star name on it. There's no way. But other things that we had to teach them that God doesn't like, things that God doesn't like. And you make that kind of an impression on the kids, they're not about to do it. And you remember when Jesus was talking with, with Peter, and Peter says, oh, we could build booze and everything when it was there at the when it was all on the mountain and Elijah and all was there with him and he said, We can build booze for y'all. And Jesus says, Get thee behind me, Satan. Wasn't nobody there but Peter. And Jesus says, Get thee behind me, Satan. Now what does that mean? He knew Peter was talking Satan talk. And what he was saying, you've got influence on Peter. You made him say this, Satan. So I'm talking to you, straight to you. I'm just bypassing Peter and talking straight to you. Get thee behind me. Don't be talking this junk to me, even out of Peter's mouth. We can talk for Satan if we're willing to. An unclean spirit radiates a certain feel. Maybe some of you people my age remember this. You remember when Avon and there was another line, what, who gives away the pink Cadillacs? Who? Mary Cadillacs. Mary Anyhow, they all put jewelry in their catalogs and they had to quit. Didn't last long. And I was praying and asking God, what's going on here, Lord? And a missionary came from Arizona and spoke at our church. And she had some of the most beautiful jade, jade, right? The blue stuff, turquoise, turquoise jewelry on. And I noticed the preacher's wife kept asking, oh, that's beautiful. I wish I knew you had one like that. Where'd you get that? How could I get one like that? And I would notice she'd kind of draw back every time they would. She'd been out there with the Navajos for 16 years. And she called the preacher's wife off to the side and said, where I could hear it, I happened to be standing close, and she said, you've got to be real, real careful about buying this jewelry because the jewelry makers put evil spirits in them to help them sell the things. And you cannot put on a piece of jewelry that's got an evil spirit in it because it works on you too. a Mexican boy that came to work for me told me that he got his power from Satan. He had a Paco de Diablo. He had a covenant with Satan that would make him strong. I didn't know how to deal with that. I knew there was such a thing, but I didn't know how to handle it. And so I got to asking all of my preacher friends. They all laughed. My cousin, Hector Joe, 
died. And I was out at Enon Cemetery at his funeral. And the preacher at Enon Church in Dry Valley came up and said, I've been wanting to meet you. And we, we shook hands and talked. I said, maybe you can help me with something. He said, what's that? I said, didn't they say you were a missionary in South America? He said, for 18 years, yeah. I said, well, tell me something about this demon possession. I said, I've been asking all these preachers around here, and they laugh at me about it. He said, you cannot ask a Southern Baptist preacher about demon possession because they don't even believe it. And I'll show you something in just a minute because nobody could tell me. And he told me how to deal with this boy, and I did, and it worked. But when he went down there, he had to deal with that all the time. Something else you need to know. The devil goes to church. Did you know that? The devil goes to church, folks. There's two ways he goes to church. Number one, he comes in in a possessed person. And I've seen him in church. Hard for me to recognize, used to be impossible for me to recognize. I, I, I tend to be able to better recognize them now. But they're in church. They're in churches around here. And as an angel of light. Flip over a couple of pages in 1 Corinthians to the, uh, chapter 11. Let me show you what the Bible says about it. Chapter 11 and verse 14. He's talking about, verse 13, for false apostles, false teachers. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transferring them, forming themselves into the apostles of Christ. Do what now? False teachers are transferring themselves into preachers. That's what an angel of light is, in a preacher. Verse 14 and no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light or a preacher. Satan can do that anytime he wants to. Now listen to this, verse 15. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness. That's good stuff, folks. Satan's ministers, the demons, can transform themselves into speakers, preachers of righteousness. Good stuff. Whose end shall be according to their works. So God says they can make themselves out to be anything they want. But when it comes to judgment day, they're going to hell. I'll see to that, he said. They may fool you today, but I'll see to it. So what I'm saying to you, do not be surprised, please, if somebody comes up with the idea that there is a demon-possessed man preaching in, in a church around here because they're here. They're still here. You can call them what you want to, but he said he recognizes them by their works. Listen to them. Listen to them talk. They won't be talking about Jesus, not as the Christ. It says in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 2, there's a description there, that we used to live according to the world and to Satan. And Ephesians 2, 2 puts them together. If you live like the world, you're living like Satan. That's automatic. The spirits that are now at work in the hearts of the sons of disobedience. The spirit of Satan is now working in the heart of these people around you who do not believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what our Bible says. It didn't change. So your reward for separation, like God calls it, is full manifestation or the reality of the fatherhood of God. All these things that God promises in his word, I will do for you 
if you follow me. I put before you a curse and a blessing. You choose. So when you live as a Christian, because nobody happens to be calling your hand to it, and you can't recognize that all the trouble you're in is because of the way you're living as a compromise. God has promised all these things, and your faith is so messed up because you know he's promised you these things, but he's not giving them to you. Why not? Because you're living a compromised life. You're not living according to the things that God doesn't like or does like. You're living according to the things that God doesn't like. You're compromising your relationship with God. And he won't give you everything if you're doing that. You get the full reality of what Jesus says he will be to us if we live like he wants us to be. You will not get all, everything that God has promised you because you're compromising. World conformity. What does it say in James? A friend of the world is an enemy to God. You get too friendly with this place out there that Satan runs, God considers you an enemy. The world conformity involves the loss of full fatherhood. Not salvation. You don't lose your salvation. But you lose your blessings from God by living a life that's not what God would want you to be. So separate from them. And then we get down to who is them. Turn to Titus chapter 1. And it describes them. Who is these people that God wants us to try to avoid, try to not spend a lot of time with, and certainly not to emulate and do just like they're doing? In Titus chapter 1 and verse 15, he compares them to us. Under the pure, all things are pure. But under them that are defiled and unbelieving, under the unbelievers, is nothing pure. Nothing about them is right. We try to make them right, but they're not. But even their minds and their consciences are defiled. They're not right. They profess they know God, but in works they deny him being abominable. That is something that God hates. And disobedient. And under every good work, reprobate. There's who they're talking about. People who claim they know God, but when you watch them and you listen to what they say and find out what's in their heart by what comes out their mouth, they're not right. You know they're not right. Their minds and their consciences are defiled. We're going to get into this thing about a conscience. If you understand about a conscience and want to know how you get them and what they look like, we're probably going to be dealing with that next week. In John chapter 17, the prayer that Jesus prayed right before he went to the cross, he's praying it to God the Father and telling God what's going on. And we learn so much about him in that prayer. But in the 17th chapter of John, in verse 15. The 17th chapter of John and verse 15. I pray not, Lord, he's, saying, he's praying to God. He says, I pray not that thou should take them out of the world. Don't take us out of the world, he says. But that thou should keep them from the evil one. What did Paul say in Romans chapter 12? 
you are already, stop being conformed. You're already being conformed to the world. You're getting more like the world every day. Stop that. Don't do that. But that thou shouldest keep them from the evil one. What does he mean here? Because we're going toward him all the time. The evil one is the world and the things of the world. And Jesus prayed that God, our Father, would keep us away from Satan. Now what does that sound like? That sounds like we want to be around Satan. But that must be what the situation is. We don't know any better. And we're getting closer and closer to him all the time, just living in the world. Verse 16, They are not of the world, even as I am not out of the world. If you want to be like me, Jesus said, you can't be part of the world because I wasn't part of the world. So sanctify them through my truth. Thy word is truth. So how do you live a life that you don't get like the unbelievers around you? You try to stay away from them as much as you can. And when you talk to them, when you listen to them, Listen to what they're saying. You'll recognize them. And there's something I've used so many times, Lord, teach me about this person right here. Let me know what he's all about. I'm going to be around him some. We're going to be dealing with business together or something, and I need to know what he's about. So show me what he's like. And God will do it. He will do it. He'll let you know who you're asking about. Because he promises he will. If we just knew to ask him. Oh, I went up there. Man, this guy sold me a car and that thing wasn't any good. I mean, it quit three days after I had it. If you ask him before you do it, he'll tell you you can't buy a car from this guy. There's so many ways he'll do that. God wants us to prosper, people. He wants to keep us away from Satan and satanic people and satanic things evil things, things that would bring us down in our relationship with God. He wants us to be successful. And we really are going wide open doing things the other way, using our own judgment and making mistakes. Just ask God and he'll show you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this bit of information. Lord, teach us to know what really is around us. Teach us to understand what this world's all about and the people that are in it. Let us be wise in our assessment of other people. Give us a clue who we're dealing with and what they really believe. Show us, Lord, when they're people that belong to you. And show us, Lord, when they're not, no matter what they say. Give us discernment. And we'll give you the praise for every bit of it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.